Welcome back to Friends and Neighbors. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and this week, Sound Minds, Chris Boulder. At some point during Chris Bullard's first day in a psych ward, just prior to his initial diagnosis as bipolar, the musician and entrepreneur picked up a guitar and began strumming. When his fellow patients emerged one by one from their rooms and began to sing along, Chris understood immediately music's capacity to create connection, build community, and foster healing. In 2018, after years of touring, While leveraging his MBA to help build social impact companies as a day job, Chris founded the nonprofit Sound Mind. Sound Mind brings together musicians, music lovers, and forward thinking organizations to build community and open dialogue around mental health to leverage the power of music to catalyze social change. I met Chris through my pal and recent Friends and Neighbors guest, Mike Joseph. When I told Mike that I wanted to align the October release of my forthcoming album, Constellations, with an organization that encourages and amplifies awareness and discussion around wellness and mental health, that is largely the narrative of my new album. For millennia, travelers have used the stars to find their way. On Constellations, I use songs to find mine. Because when I left the bustling streets of New York City for the leafy suburbs of Wilmington, Delaware, and left my well-worn multi-hyphenate identity behind, my old self was lost in a new place. I leaned into songwriting and ultimately unearthed long-held secrets, deeply buried stories, and hard-earned life lessons, including the difficult admission that by some metric anyway, I wasn't entirely well. Enter Sound Mind, who will be the beneficiary of proceeds from ticket sales at my October 21st album release with Lily McCown and Chance at The Crown in Wilmington and October 27th at Rockwood Music Hall in New York City. In Chris, I found a fellow traveler, someone compelled to make the mentionable manageable and talk about hard things. On this week's Friends and Neighbors, Chris shares his journey growing up in the San Fernando Valley sharing a mic with Chris Christofferson, being diagnosed with bipolar disorder, using music to cope and heal, and finding the courage to be the change he wanted to see in the world. I grew up in the Valley, the infamous San Fernando Valley, the Valley of the Movies. You know, suburbs of LA, it felt like the bubble that you want to escape from. The Valley is a place that has like all different ethnicities and pretty diverse socioeconomically too, because it's so big. You know, my family grew up middle class, went to private Catholic school, which was like the cheapest private school and pretty secular for a Catholic school. Grew up, I feel like a lot of suburban kids mingling in different groups, being a little bit sheltered, but then, you know, diving into going to shows in the city and trying to sneak out of the valley as much as possible. (laughs) In most ways, felt very fortunate. You know, my parents went through some struggles as a kid, which, you know, they ended up staying together when I was like in middle school. We uh, went through a tough time when my dad lost his business and my mom and dad were going through a rough time. So, you know, there were like 
small periods of real difficulty. All things considered, I had a pretty fortunate upbringing with love from family and friends and a comfortable enough safety net financially. I'm always interested in, for example, the kind of dinner table conversation. What was the topic? What was the tenor? What was the vibe? When I was born, my mom was 38. My dad was 58. They're 20 years apart. So there is really like three generations at the dinner table. I'm an only child as well. So that created an interesting dynamic where also my dad was just kind of like slowing down in his life slowly. So it's a little less talkative and Also, my parents both came from a background of growing up with very little growth, grew up on farms in like the Midwest and were the ones in their families to kind of move out, go to the city, make something of themselves. They were both very entrepreneurial. My mom was a small business owner and my dad owned a business. And so a lot of the talk was actually about how things were, you know, besides asking like how was school and all that, they would kind of go into their own work productivity like how are things going how is that vision of american excess working out <laughs> right what was one of the first favorite songs you can remember and do you remember hearing it and how it made you feel so a band that stuck with me still till today is third eye blind this was before like i really grasped on to music as my thing i mean i, I grew up playing piano so and i was always into music always wanted to play guitar finally started playing at 13 but i remember at the age of like nine or ten having the radio on. And at that point I was listening to top 40 radio and hearing semi-charmed life by third eye blind. And even though at the time I had no idea what crystal meth was just something about the tonality and angst in his voice resonated. And that angst is something I think that's carried through to like my punk rock phase and everything and into adulthood and that sense of like, oh, there's a darkness around us that I can tap into that maybe I'm not yet in my life. And I think That just really struck a chord for me on that ride to school and probably kickstarted me going out and like buying all the cassettes or CDs. (laughs) It's so interesting too that you talk about the darkness because it's darkness, but wrapped in doot, 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 doot. I mean, what could be a poppier packaging? That's one of the reasons I, I loved them was I felt like it was always a really smart way to have these undertones of saying something really deep, but packaging it in a way that everyone could relate to. And it's not like you had to dive deep into the music collection to kind of find these gems lyrically. We're going to package this for top 40 radio. And I think I remember hearing them being like, we want to contrast the darkness of this song with the poppiest chorus riff you've ever heard. Yeah, it really is. It really is, man. I mean, it's an incredibly poppy refrain. You know, what's interesting is you have these dual tracks, which I do too. We've got these parallel paths, a pursuit of mainstream executive sort of suit life, as well as like playing in Willie Nelson's son's band. So what was that path like through high school and through college? And I'm wondering, how did that manifest at home? Was there any tension? Was it like, hey man, whatever you want to do? When I was like five, I wanted to play guitar. My parents were like, you're going to play piano first. And then when you're 13, you can get a guitar. And I got all the theory and piano. And then at the age of 13, I was like, I want my guitar. And then that kind of set me (laughs) off and go, cool, now I'm doing the rock thing or that branched out. And then was in bands throughout middle school and high school and always was taking it seriously. Like in high school, I was the guy in the band kind of managing it and being like, okay, how are we going to book bigger and bigger shows and then book a tour and all that. And the 
input from particularly like my mom's side was often, that's great. Love your music. Just go to college and then you yeah. can do whatever you want to do. Get that on the back burner and then you will have that on the back burner for the rest of your life. You'll be kind of like set up. So it was kind of this encouragement, but it's really, really hard. Don't you know like how hard it is? You want a backup plan. So a little bit, not of like the full encouragement. So I went to college. I started out in engineering and then quickly was like, I don't want to do this. So I tried to switch to music industry and that would have taken an extra two years of college. So I was just like, you know what? I graduated with a comms degree and I was like, I'll just play music on the side as a gig for hire and started getting really good playing for like different pop acts in LA and did little tours out to like Sundance. And then in graduating college came across one of my good friends was playing with Micah Nelson, Willie Nelson's son, who's playing drums and had this opportunity to join a band with them. And it was this an amazing opportunity. Obviously a light bulb goes off of like, oh, a lot of doors could open here. This is probably a good moment to kind of go for it. And it coincided with graduating school and went for it. Um, wow, what timing. Yeah. But like a lot of folks simultaneously had to have the day job. Yeah. I think the difference was because in my mind, like it was really like, what's my backup plan if this doesn't work out? I was like, I'm going to give this two years. If it doesn't work out, I was like the first employee at a startup sustainability company. And I think there was like three months where I was a server at a restaurant Whereas that's more of like the traditional like day job thing. I had this job that kind of ended up giving me a lot of street skills from a business standpoint of seeing these guys grow their business and help them grow their business, which set up that dual path. So then after two years, which, you know, at that age, you're like two years sounds like a lifetime. Now I'm like two years. That's (laughs) (laughs) The band was kind of disintegrating in certain ways. And aside from deciding to like go full force and solo pursuits or somewhere else, decided to focus more on the, on the other track. What for me was kind of like the business track. I've toured enough to be dangerous and enough to know, you know, as I often tell people, it's 23 and a half hours of discomfort for 30 minutes of maybe elation or maybe disappointment, right? You had some highs and lows. I'd love to hear one of each. We got invited to perform at Willie Nelson's 4th of July picnic, which he does every year in Austin. And it's like, 10 or 15,000 people. The most epic moment was we played right before Willie. And so as we played, we covered on 4th of July, we covered Man of Constant Sorrow. Mm -hmm. And Willie came out as did Chris Christopherson and played. Yeah, I was like singing in the same mic as Chris Christopherson, looking over at Willie in front of like 10,000 people. I'm like, what is my life? Like I have made it. I have peaked at the age of 23. Where do I go from here? <laughs> and that was amazing. And remember like hugging my best friend, like who is one of the singers and just being like, man, this is incredible. Like so glad we took this risk. And then this was probably within a month of that, we were touring in an RV and ended up playing some small gig in Denver, Colorado, where there were 10 people in a bar And I've got like zero money in my bank account because I spent it all chipping in for the RV and taking six weeks off work. And I'm just like, what am I doing with my life? Mm -hmm. I'm guessing that was before the Willie Nelson, like 4th of July moment, because maybe I would have some more perspective, but it was just surprising how close together those happen and how vastly different it is and how you feel like there's these moments of like, oh, this is why it's all worth it. And there's also these moments of, 
the story you tell yourself of like, oh, where am I really? And like, it's neither, you're both. And it's okay to be both, you know, especially when you feel that external pressure. You start to see, you know, I would start to see like other friends being successful in their career and like starting to get married or think about homes. And it's like, I'm broke at a bar with 10 people in Denver. (laughs) You got to give me a couple of band names. Ah, there was Legal Nevada, which is my personal favorite. Yeah, that's not bad at all. That was the uh, beginning of high school band name. And then there was uh, Goodbye Skyline, which was the most like emo screamo band name that we could possibly (laughs) come up with. And it it fit the mark perfectly. Those are great, dude. That's a strong record. Come on, you got to have worse than that. Well, I mean, the band I toured with was the Reflecticals, which I wasn't there. I was away somewhere and I came back and like, hey, our band name's the Reflecticals. I was like, I wish I got a vote on this one. I'm interested in the through line between the legit gigs, clean energy, supporting marginal communities and advocating for mental health. What's the through line there, Chris? Trying to build a purposeful life at the Mm -hmm. end of the day. I've always felt that heavy desire to use my life in a purposeful way and have whatever I'm doing from a work perspective feel aligned personally. And whenever those start to veer, there was a point when the clean energy pursuit, it it felt a little too much like I'm doing work. And like at the beginning, it was just kind of like, oh yeah, that's a good thing to do. I'll do that. And then I realized that like, that's not what impassions me day to day. It's an awesome thing for someone to work on. And that kind of happened with supporting people, mostly like what we would call like underdeveloped countries. That's amazing, but there's so much that needs to be done with something that I've experienced living with bipolar disorder Mm -hmm. that I can have a lot more impact on. But the through line just being like, how can we be more purposeful and do something that needs to be done and I think increasingly now I'm asking myself, why am I the person that needs to do that? Right. That's a great question. You characterize the founding of Sound Mind Live sort of thusly that you gained experience overcoming mental health stigma after you were diagnosed with bipolar disorder in your mid-20s. Can you describe that experience? How did that transpire and and what sort of steps did you take? For folks that you know might not know about bipolar disorder, essentially, you know, you experience manic, which is like high energy elevated states, which can also, if you're what's called bipolar one, that can just be so elevated that it can dissociate from reality. And then also like potentially depressive states, which are like those Mm -hmm. two poles. And I've been fortunate enough where I haven't fallen too deep into any depression, but I definitely get those heightened elevated states and they're typically triggered by like stressful time Mm -hmm. moments. And it was the first time I slipped into like a full on manic episode was when I had decided to like go full fledged and do a clean energy company. I was starting mm-hmm. in LA and it was like the transition away from music into something else and like totally throwing myself into it, staying up late at night. And increasingly like with the manic state, what starts to happen is like all these ideas come and like a lot of dots feel like they start to connect. Mm. And in some ways, you know, there's a lot of beauty around it. You're seeing things you might not have seen before, little like synchronicities of like, I can't believe that happened at that time. That must be a reason. Reading into things symbolically and a lot of research done now too of like how in many ways these states are like spiritual experiences. But what can happen is 
I was so ill-prepared to deal with that. I didn't know what bipolar disorder was. I was basically, it felt like I was completely in like an altered state, like you might be Mm. on like LSD or mushrooms, but without having taken anything. So I was fortunate enough at the time, like my girlfriend at the time and my parents, they basically took me to the ER, which, you know, they placed me eventually in a psych ward for 72 hours. And then coming out, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. But the stigma kind of came from one, not really knowing what that meant besides Mm -hmm. kind of hearing about it in passing or seeing it on in movies and feeling I had this experience, which actually was like very meaningful to me. I was facing a lot of like those past traumas and issues in my own life experientially. Like a lot of people do on psychedelic drugs, right? You're like kind of like facing your inner demons and what it felt like was someone was like just kind of putting a label on it, being like, take a pill. And part of the journey of coming over that stigma, it was, feeling comfortable enough to talk about it, talk about my experience in a way that was educating others. And then also get into somewhere like therapy where there was kind of this validation of like, these were things I was dealing with. And yes, they were manifesting in ways that could be like really difficult to deal with on a day-to-day basis, but with proper support, you can work through this stuff. And it's not like a, you have this illness and just take a pill, it'll go away. It's like, this is, now like part of your life's work is how to integrate what was coming up for you and how to live a healthy life with it. I think you know this, but to stay for the record, this is part of where I was really attracted to the work you do and wanting to support it and align with it because I guess a hallmark of my personality has always been sort of a radical candor, whether it was a blogger in the early aughts or in my songs or in my movie or in my podcast. And the older I've gotten, the clearer it's become to me that it's unique because especially dudes who look like you and me, who haven't experienced the same degrees of cultural oppression are largely silent and stoic. I mean, you know, Bruce Willis and John Wayne are allowed two emotions, right? And that's kind of the American male, like rage and lust, you know? And that is not a very wide range of human experience, you know? That's what's so attractive to me about what you're doing is what Fred Rogers would say, what's mentionable is manageable, right? And when we talk about it, it loses power. Like the first thing you teach your kids, I got a 10 year old and a 12 year old is like, let's name that emotion. Let's just start with, well, what, what are you experiencing? How's that feeling your body? Right. Just so it's not like mysterious and secretive and dangerous and other. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, talking about like the way people grow up is huge. Like that's something in my household that It's not like there wasn't a communicative household, but my parents didn't grow up with that kind of education or that intuitive sense of like, what are the emotions that's going on in the room and how to talk about them in in the right way. Like they were doing their best, but that's something I think as a society, we're slowly getting better at. And like you're talking about for men, it's even more difficult because it's in the media, not commonly portrayed, at least historically, as like being open and vulnerable. That's why I mentioned John Wayne, who was born in Winterset, Iowa, about, you know, I don't know, hundred miles away from where my parents are from. And of course, as an American icon of that age, a strong silent type, the silent generation, the greatest generation, right? You saw your friend die in World War II, but you didn't talk about it for 50 years until you were on your deathbed. It's not really anybody's fault so much as it is like something to acknowledge, understand, and then say, well, that could be a setup for problems if you don't try and find a new way to do it. Yeah. And I remember vividly like idealizing that seeing like the way my dad might act and total like 
strong, silent type and being like, it's amazing how he's so caring, but, and he hold, he's able to hold everything. Like, God, well, how strong. And idealizing that and not being able to do that myself in terms of like, when I need help, talking about the way I'm feeling and things like that, which has been a lot of my own work, you know, since all of that's kind of surfaced through the bipolar manifestation. Have you seen an evolution in, in your father in regards to his ability to hold it all together? So he actually passed a couple years back, but I did. And interestingly, yeah. I think what I saw happen was as his physical abilities started to wane, like kind of these layers almost got stripped off of like, mm -hmm. okay, well, now that I can't golf anymore, who am I? Now that I can't like go climb a branch and like build a pergola in our backyard, who am yeah. I? And, and he's, his sensitivity started to open up towards the end. And part of it probably too is he's nearing his end of his life, but that was beautiful to see. I was just talking about that the other day and like being able to see that other side of him was amazing. Yeah. It, it's, um, it's really interesting how pervasive it is, strong and silent. I mean, that's the two phrases, right? I said to my wife last night, I was like, I'm not supposed to be afraid. And the truth is, I'm afraid all the fucking time. And I'm extra afraid because I grew up afraid, which I only realized in the last couple of years, you know, a lot of uncertainty in my household, my parents divorced, and then my jaw was broken when I was 16. So you had like between eight and 16, just a succession of shit that set my nervous system on the defensive. So I was in fight or flight, right? And by the time I got to college, I was getting stoned every day and drinking beer every night, which is just about enough. And then by the time I was in my thirties, in order to sustain a career of a lot of domestic and then global travel, I was taking Zoloft and Xanax, you know? So by the time the pandemic hits, I'm a fucking wreck. I mean, nobody knows it because I'm being strong and silent. You're flying all around, keeping your shit together in ways that are like almost like totally normalized too. Like as a way, you know, yeah. whether it's drinking or Xanax, it's just like, oh yeah, that's the norm. Like, of course, I'm just gonna like binge drink every weekend because like everyone's doing it because I'm in my late 20s, early 30s. Mm -hmm. It's like, there's another way and the, that other way is really going to give you the real strength. It's just a coping mechanism, right? Life is painful and suffering is hard. And what's easier is to take the pill or to drink the thing. But to your point, the real strength and the real insight and the real epiphany and the real beauty, which comes in equal measure with the real hard part and the real sad stuff is in the sort of what feels like radical clarity to me these days. You know, I used to get like really excited about like, oh, I'm going to go bungee jumping and like do all this extreme mm -hmm. stuff. I'm like, dude, my emotions are extreme enough. And like, the more I dive yeah. into self, like I don't need to like go on adventure vacations anymore. I can have enough adventure in my own mind now. <laughs> Tell me about the origin story for Sound Mind Live. How was it born? What does it do? The original origin where I think the idea crept up when I, that first time I was in a psych ward I pulled out a guitar and just started strumming sublime what I got, um, mm -hmm. you know, classic nineties reference again, but everyone started like coming out of the woodworks and like singing along. And it was like, you know, a guy was homeless off the street as well as an executive type. And I was just like, wow, everyone, mm -hmm. this is really connecting everyone, this music thing. And we're all healing together in the moment, building community. It was a beautiful moment. And I like journaled about it, but like didn't think much about it after that. And then when I was working in international development, I was coming to this place in my own journey where I was like, you know, I feel like I'm really starting to get this. And I was going to like regular support groups at the National Alliance on Mental Illness. I was like, I want to give back. And I also, I was also, you know, to be honest, like kind of like looking at an idea of like, what can I build that's meaningful? And 
So I started a music support program at the National Alliance on Mental Illness here in New York City. And that was like the real genesis of like, again, just seeing how like music was bringing all these people together to sing, to talk, using music as a vehicle to heal and help people talk and connect. And then with NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, we put together a benefit concert. And this was, you know, still like straddling jobs and ended up throwing this benefit concert at Rough Trade in New York City with Langhorn Slim, a couple other artists. It almost immediately sold out and Billboard Magazine did an article on like the mental health journey of the different artists and the organizations coming together. And that was just kind of, you know, a light bulb went off of like, wow, this is so powerful. It's helping people, both the mental health and music communities were kind of latching on of like, this could be really impactful. And it was a lot of fun, to be honest. You know, I was like working with musicians again and it was helpful for my own journey. Just how could I use my own story and the story of other artists to uplift other people and help them feel comfortable reaching out and help them access, you know, in that case, the resources of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And then just started to grow from there, putting on other events. And then, you know, the pandemic hit from left field and event live events became live stream and live stream became, let's start a podcast and let's start doing videos. And then as the pandemic started to wane, it was like, let's get out on artist tours. So touring with Willie Nelson, he is one of the founders with like Neil Young and others of Farm Aid, which mm-hmm. is an annual festival using music as a way to elevate the plight of family farmers and really raise awareness and funds for that. And my vision has always been how can Sound Mind be a platform to build the Farm Aid or the global citizen of mental health. This next year will be like our fifth year doing our annual festival. And it's been amazing to just see that grow as well, but also the ecosystem of Sound Mind kind of grow around it. One of the statistics you share is that 73% of musicians live with mental health issues. How do you make sense of that? Or what have you come to learn around that? With mental health issues or like diagnosed mental health issues, you can imagine that like creative types or very open types who are like pushing the boundaries of what's possible have a higher prevalence of mental health issues. They're usually like thinking more expansively with bipolar disorder. That's also the case, a lot of like poets and writers. So that's kind of just like from a personality standpoint, like kind of being predisposed to like feel the depths of, you know, we're talking about darkness earlier, being able to like feel and sit in that can create a lot of beauty, but also be be really tough. Um, Sitting with your demons a little more and keeping the window open rather than just shutting it and moving on. At the same time with musicians and a lot of other creative arts, like the lifestyle of musicians in such a way where there's a lot of high stress and not a lot of downtime and often a lot of substance use. And those things can all help manifest a lot of mental health issues. And like we were talking about, the substances kind of like quell it for a bit, but then just lead to Mm -hmm. more issues later on. So I think with the artist community, it's kind of both, like a little bit of a predisposition from like the nature side. And then the nurture side is just like, oh man, I'm on tour every day. I don't sleep, drinking every night, doing whatever else to just keep going as I can. I think all of those things kind of lead to it. What have you come to understand in terms of music's healing power for the individual and or the community? I mean, I think we've all seen how just like lyrical content can really transmit from an artist's side, like this is what I've wrestled with and being able to process that. I know that's been helpful for me as a songwriter, just processing through writing and sharing that with others as a way to, to communicate. 
music definitely from an artist or audience perspective has this ability also to build community as well. You're transmitting and building empathy through that communication aspect that I talked about, but you're also gathering and coming together and talking and feeling more open towards everything when you're, when you're experiencing music. I think the interesting thing that I didn't think about when I started SoundMind, but we've heard a lot from the artists we work with is also like that, that wall being broken down between artists and the audience when you're doing more than just performing, but you're talking about your lived experience in a lot of our programming, like that's what it is. Like whether it's a show or an interview, like artists speaking and mostly just speaking to their fans of like, this is my experience and being able to develop a closer relationship with them has been, I think the most rewarding part of working with us for a lot of artists is like, yeah, I'm doing good, but I'm, I'm having like meaningful relationships with a lot of my fans and so much of healing is community and healing relationships. It's been beautiful to see that symbiotic relationship go even deeper between artists and listeners. That's so interesting, Chris. I'm thinking about when I was a kid. It was like 1983 copy of Rolling Stone magazine with Michael Jackson on the front. And he's like in Neverland and he's anxious and he's depressed and he's not happy. And I was like, wait, what? He's like got the biggest record on the charts, right? What's the problem? But I felt so connected to him in the idea that like, there was a sense of sadness. It was the first place I found it. It was music. And, and as it was communicated by an artist to its audience. So there's an evolution in strong silent and this otherness of the artist, like almost like, you know, the old Hollywood stars were up on pedestals to this idea of, no, we're wrestling with the same stuff. And that's part of the, the mutuality of the relationship that's different from maybe how it was. I think a lot of what we see with artists on stage is often like a manifestation of things that were just not comfortable expressing. You see the artist going wild on stage and you're like, oh, they're such an amazing performer. But like, you think that because like, that's all inside of you. We're just like, you know, people are like wearing their suits to work and like, you're yeah. just like, that's not getting expressed. So like we're, we're having it expressed on stage and it's beautiful to be like, oh yeah, we're just like dealing with the same stuff. We're both the same humans. And it's okay to express all these things. And I think artists hopefully are like pushing the limits on like what it's okay to express. It is a permission for a more collective expression that is otherwise repressed because we have to do our thing. We have to make our money. We have to pay our mortgage. Exactly. I just had the vision of like David Byrne kind of like dancing around in his suit and being like, yeah. you know, just challenging the norms of yeah, what yeah. everything is. And I think that's so so important and crucial. And like you said, just music is such a great vehicle to do that because it just cuts across all the lines. You know, sometimes art gets put into this category of like, you know, like high art and music cuts across all the, all the different lines and resonates with everyone at such like a visceral level. So what is Sound Mind Live's wildest ambition or hope for the future? Like what would be, we did it. Right now, SoundMind is producing a five-part docu-series that we hope could get on a major streaming service of really elevating what it's like to live with a mental health condition and how that manifests in different ways, you know, following like five different artists and to be able to storytell in that kind of depth and have that kind of reach and really push the conversation. I think part of it too is we want that storytelling 
you know, it has to come up authentically, but really to just show like what, what this evolution is for someone and how we're all dealing with it in some way. And that's, you know, a lot of the short form content we've done with artists. It tells that, but as a documentary maker, you get it. Like the more you can really dig into that story, the more someone can also see themselves and see what someone else has done and what might be helpful or not for themselves. And it also can really just help change the conversation. So we're really launching that right now. And then I mentioned the ability to grow this annual festival is is huge for us. We're doing it as 7,000 person street fest in New York City next year. And year by year, we see it grow. And I think the vision for that would be, let's take it to a multi-day festival. You know, it doesn't have to be the Coachella, but something where it's people are coming out from across the country, across the world to support mental health through music and we can get more and more of the artists that we've worked with throughout the year to come. We always do panel discussions with it. We'd love to see like a whole day on panels. So as we continue to build those resources and that momentum, it's it's happening. And that would be beautiful to see over the next five years to so just really continue to grow. And part of both of these is, is shifting our conversation on mental health too. With society right now, we have a very pathological view of mental health, kind of talking about it earlier of like, oh, it's an illness, you need to treat it, go take medication. And it's like, I don't discriminate on medication, like it can be very helpful, but it's not the end all be all. There is such a deeper lifelong journey that you're going on with a mental health condition. And what really is just like this journey of getting to know yourself and like, you get one life in this world and stuff's coming up for a reason, you might as well explore it and take this life for whatever it's worth and however you can utilize it to explore yourself. Cause that's like where the really happiness is going to lie. And the more sound mind and music can be a vehicle to encourage people along that journey or help people along that journey and guide from mental health to like healing, you know, health is really like healing of like the whole self. That's really where I'd love to see Sound Mind helping a lot of people. I think we are, but like really making that clear of like, this is a deeper journey that you can go on. And meantime, you're still making music. You're still in the game. Indeed I am. I don't think I'll ever stop making music like you. It's like, it's, that's my own healing power and I'm still yeah. putting it out there in the world. And I can't imagine myself stopping doing that at least. first involved with a project called Wax Owls. Uh, The former singer of my old band and I were doing a lot of co-writing during the pandemic. We released some tracks that got some attention of some folks at Red Light Management. We got booked on a couple shows. I played Bonnaroo this summer, which was like a dream come true. Yeah, Um, dude. So that, like, from a performing live stand aspect, like, been able to do that. I've also been doing a lot of writing and production as well, working with singers to be able to do some songwriting that's meaningful, that kind of taking that lesson from Third Eye Blind, if you can say really meaningful stuff and put it into a really palpable poppy song or poppy rock song, that's been a lot of my own music journey is like doing that and finding all the cool creative ways to say meaningful things in a really 
easily palpable way. So knowing what you know now, how would you advise that 12-year-old or 13-year-old listening to Third Eye Blind? Follow your heart and what feels right, what's really exciting you, because whatever you do in life, it takes so much work. So you might as well really enjoy what you're doing and fail at something you love rather than fail at anything else. So just go for it. (laughs) Friends and Neighbors is an essential industries production in association with Wagner Brothers. Learn more at friendsandneighborsshow.com. And please help your friends and neighbors discover our show by sharing, liking, commenting, and rating. Really, it makes a difference. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends.